Hello and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, episode number 53. I am your host, Jason Traeger. This episode, I am presenting to you a conversation between myself and Sam Nee, creator of maintainer of the A Scene in Between Instagram feed. And he's also the author slash compiler of a book by the same name, A Scene in Between. The new revised edition of that book just came out. And we're going to talk about that. We did talk about this, and I'm going to present it to you in this episode. If you don't already follow A Scene in Between on Instagram, I would encourage you to do so. It's a wonderful, very, very good collection of photographs of indie obscuros, garage rock, might have beens, punk rock unknowns, etc., etc. You get the idea. It's a must follow, must see Instagram account. I mean, if you're into music, like you know, anything to do with garage rock, punk, etc., psych, prog. If you're into the style of it, if you're into vintage instruments, amps, stuff like that, fashion, this is the place. You got to check it out. It's incredible. And as I said to Sam at the beginning of our our, uh, conversation, his Instagram feed, A Scene In Between, was the primary inspiration to me, on me, whatever you want to say, to start my own music history feed. Uh, I had uh, been doing my... Traeger Method account for a while, just as a sort of art freak out video experimental thing. But after seeing a photograph of myself on Sam's feed, myself as a 13-year-old in my basement at the drum set, and then there's another photo of me with with, with a wall of flyers behind me in my bedroom in Tacoma, 1982. And I saw those and I thought to myself, you know, I am a part of music history, even if I'm a total indie rock obscuro, a punk rock unknown, a garage rock might have been. And it occurred to me that my perspective as such, as a person who's operated for almost all my life in that kind of a realm, whether it's in art or music or whatever, that I have a unique perspective to share on history. Sam encouraged me to go for it and share that. So I thank him very much for inspiring that. And if you enjoyed the Traeger Method podcast, you're listening to it, so you must get something out of it, I'd imagine. Something drew you here. You should thank Sam too. That's what I'm getting at. How best to thank him? Well, follow his account and buy his book, A Scene in Between, on Cicada. That is the imprint that released the book, the publisher, I should say. I also make the distinction in the uh, conversation that the book, A Scene in Between, is about a very specific time and place. It's about UK indie music, 1980 to 1988. That guitar-based, kind of 60s-inspired scene between punk and rave. That's what the book is about. The feed, on the other hand, the Instagram account, that's much more broad. But the one thing the two have in common is that they don't focus on huge names. You know? Like, you're going to get the Smiths. In the book, you're going to get stuff like the Smiths, My Bloody Valentine, some bands that you that are, you know, 
quite famous, quite well-known, but you're going to hear a lot about very obscure, you're going to read about and you see photos of very obscure bands too, bands you've never heard of probably, unless you're deep in it. In the case of the book, the name A Scene in Between speaks to that position between punk and rave, you know, the two big scenes that blew the world away. You know, it's the, it's a scene in between. But uh, when I when I first encountered the Instagram account, I thought to myself, you know, this, I thought the scene in between name spoke more to the fact that between every well-known band, between every well-known figure who comes out of any kind of scene, which almost all musicians do, between every one of those well-known figures, there's an ocean of people who aren't known. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing comes out of nowhere. And I think Sam's project does a really great job of illustrating that. You know, music is music being made by people. It's not about shifting units. It's not about clicks and likes and the most followers. It's about human beings making a joyous noise for its own sake. And also looking cool or interesting while doing so. Because, of course, these are photographs. This isn't a compilation album. This is a bunch of pictures. And fashion, like music, created as much out of limitations as anything else. You know, what's in the thrift stores right now? And fashion's, you know, full of weirdos, naive innovators, micro-niches, revivalists. You get the idea. Sometimes I worry that my intros are just me repeating what I'm about to share anyways in the conversation, but whatever, it doesn't matter. It's not important. I'd like to switch gears for a moment and say thank you so much to everyone who came out to my art opening at World Famous Original here in Portland, had the opening Sunday before last. Huge thank you to Ben from World Famous Original and to Mark Phillips of Upstairs Basement PDX who curated the show, put it together. Thank you so much to Ben and Mark for making it a reality. The opening was great. And huge, huge heartfelt thank you to everyone who came out to the opening and who has stopped by the show since and let me know that they enjoyed it. I appreciate it so much. The show will be up through the month through the month, and into December. It is a collection of oil paintings by me called What the World Needs Now. That's the name of the show. I just named it that after the Dionne Warwick, Burt Bacharach song. Del Shannon, I guess, also did that song. A lot of people have done that song. What the World Needs Now is love, sweet love, music, poetry, art, photographs of people looking cool. That's what the world needs. Comedy, too. We need to laugh, of course. Okay. Another big, huge thank you, of course. I always have to give tons of thank yous in these intros. I'm going to do it every single time, probably. It's very tedious, but I have to just constantly share my gratitude and profound thank you to everyone, all my wonderful listeners who support the podcast through Patreon. I have some new subscribers. Thank you. Thank you. Traeger Method Patreon. And also through the Anchor app. Thank you. And if you'd like to support the podcast, this this project of mine, of ours, and you're not in a position to do so financially, please tell a friend. Let somebody know. Give the gift of podcast in this season of thanks and 
giving. Okay. I will finish by saying I love you all. Give yourself a break if you're hard on yourself about anything. The only time you can love someone is now. You might have loved in the past. You might love in the future. But the only time you truly can love yourself or others is now. Do it. That's an order. I command thee. Okay. Enjoy my conversation with the man behind a scene in between the book and the Instagram feed, Mr. Sam Nee. Hello, Sam. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Yeah, nice to meet you finally. Good. Nice to meet you too. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Oh, my pleasure to have you. Um, I thought it was very appropriate to have you on considering I just crossed my 50th, uh, the Rubicon of my 50th episode. And, uh, oh, is it really? Wow. Yeah. And that I have flew to. By. And, yeah, flew by quickly. yeah, it did. Yeah. It started almost exactly a year ago. Um, right wow. around now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a big really part was. of why I started the, the, uh, podcast and my, uh, Instagram memory lane, um, project was inspired by a scene in between. Oh, no your, way. Your Instagram feed. Oh, I didn't realize. Wow. That's very, very yeah. <laughs> well, I saw, I was very flattered when I saw a photo of myself in your, on your, uh, your amazing feed of, you know, I mean, how do you describe a scene in between? Because I mean, it covers so much more than we're going to talk about your book, of course, which covers yeah. a very specific time, but your uh, scene in between Instagram covers. Well, how would you describe what it covers? Well, it's, it covers a lot of 80s underground, um, 80s UK underground, and then uh, the more the more indie sort of like guitar scenes, you know, and, and, and American Paisley underground scenes. And it covers all the sort of 60s inspired 80s scenes that I used to be really into then. Um, it covers quite a lot of 80s hardcore as well. And particularly, I think, sort of suburban you know, more like, not so much the big names sort of thing, like hardcore, more like the little kind of garage band sort of thing. And then um, and then it covers like individuals that, that look good, you know, like that photo post of you in your, in your bedroom with all those flyers <laughs> and stuff. It's just so, just so fantastic, you know. And, um, I, I, you know, I cover a lot of that ground. That's really my main thing is like kind of 80s, like youth, like, but, but more like indie underground youth as opposed to like anything remotely mainstream. Right. And then um and then sixties stuff. I love American sixties, like mid sixties American bands and that whole Americana thing for me has always been a big fascination, you know. So like in the eighties I got really into like Back from the Grave and those sort of compilations and looking at the back the photos on the back of like his little bands in these like suburban streets playing in front of their like dad's garage and stuff. I thought it's just so romantic, you know, so you know. And I, I just try and trawl as many obscure photos as I can. It's not even really about what the band was or... Because you never even heard half of those ones. I don't think any, half of them ever even recorded. But it's just that look I like, you know. Yeah, how many ways have you come up to describe uh, psych rock obscuros, <laughs> total nobodies or whatever? Yeah, total nobodies, yeah. <laughs> I love all that. Yeah, yeah you're good yeah. at that. Yeah. You, you have to describe that a lot. Yes, yeah, you know, I think... And I think you know, with the whole thing with the internet and social media, all, all of a sudden it's like lifted the lid off the world in a way. And, you know, you can just contact all these people 
so easily now. Like I write to these guys that are in bands in the mid sixties all the time and they send me their photos and that. And it's like, that would have been obviously unheard of in the eighties, you know, the sixties then seemed further away. Yeah. You know, in some respect. Right. Yeah. That's interesting to point out. Right. They did yeah. seem further away in 1986 than they do now. Yeah. It seemed like so far away, but it was, it was, it was nothing really. But now it seems like you can almost like reach out and touch it, you know, to some degree, like, you know, right. Elements of it, you know? Yeah. I've often been struck by the idea that like, well, like, you know, the other day I was on in Portland here where I live and I was walking down Hawthorne a kind of cool street and I saw a bunch of young kids with punk rock clothes on and I looked at their yeah. their vests and I noticed they didn't have a single band on that vest that was newer really? than 30 years old, you know? Oh, really? Well, yeah. And yeah. I was thinking how to them, time is flattened in the internet age. Like all those bands are current bands in a way, in the sense that yeah. all the music exists at on a flat yeah. plane kind of. Oh yeah. I think young people have a whole different concept of time and, right. and space. I don't think, I think with our generation more, it's like, I always talk about dates with people. I, you know, I'm always like 65 or 67 or like, you know, 85. It's all for me. It's like, I have to have it really kind of clear in my mind when things are from, but you talk to some young people that they don't really have that. They don't have those boundaries. So, they're not so strict in their minds, I don't think. They're sort of quite accepting of everything. It all kind of mushes together a bit more. Because I, I sort of have to be completely clear of when things are from and where it's from. And, you know, just to sort of, um, just for myself, really. Not for yeah, to put it. some order on it to make some yeah. sense of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's strange. But, yeah, obviously, like, if kids are wearing patches of bands that are 30 years old, that'd be like, yeah, me in the early, mid-80s wearing like a sort of, you know, buddy holly t-shirt or something i suppose right or, yeah know, benny goodman maybe benny goodman or something yeah probably yeah pre pre buddy holly even yeah right so where did you grow up and when did you get into music as a fan um i grew up in a town called south end just about 30 miles east of london in essex on the thames estuary and it's just well i live just along from there about a couple of miles a place called leon sea to be precise it's like Back then, it was quite a sleepy little place, you know, on the outskirts of South End. It was quite a big seaside town. And it used to be the main uh, seaside resort for EastEnders to go to for their holidays. You know, it was a bit like Coney Island wants to New Yorkers or something. You know, it's quite close, really. So I grew up there. Um, and my parents, they're both from East London originally. They, they migrate, migrated out there in the sort of early 60s, you know, and normal kind of post-war migration you know sort of thing or families moving further out east sort of thing and uh my dad had a job at the art school there so he was always around you know young people and music and you know he was always bringing home stuff and just talking about bands and my mum was quite into music she was they were in the 60s you know obviously when i was born they were both quite into like dylan and the rolling stones and and when they were a little bit younger, they were quite into like trad jazz. There's a bit of a trad jazz boom here. Right. You know, and they were, um, they were members of the CND, you know, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. They, they were into that, you know, and they'd go on lots of marches and, you know, so they were quite political and they were sort of like British beatniks, you know, but they were, they were from like, um, you know, working class backgrounds, but they were like the first generation to really go to art school. Of for like working class kids, you know, so they were like a, they were like a real new wave generation, you know, right? Um, for this country, um, so yeah, my dad was always 
fairly you know switched on but i've got an older sister she's five years older like <clears throat> she turns 60 next year and um yeah i mean looking back i was quite fortunate really because where we lived was hardly like metropolitan you know and um she got into punk rock um and you know brought all those early records home you know the first wave of punk was quite overground anyway in the uk a lot of, right you know a lot of those bands were on mainstream labels and major labels you know and it was it was very overground it's quite visible like you know watch top of the pops and you could see like you know jam and the adverts the buzzcocks they're all on there you know it wasn't like you had to really kind of search it out you know so she was quite into that and then a little bit after that kind of blew over she got more into the post-punk bands and she was much more into those actually she was got really into public image and um you know like killing joke and joy division and a lot of those early rough trade bands um you know, like Kleenex and stuff. She had, had all those records, you know, but that was just in the next bedroom over. So I was quite lucky in a way. She was quite, she was quite informed. So when I got to about 12 in um, 79, um, I started at the secondary school. And um, until then, I hadn't, until then I, I'd liked music, but not really. I was more interested in like, you know, playing with my toy soldiers and stuff and that, you know, all that kind of thing. And then uh, when I started secondary school, it was at the height of that real mod revival thing that was blowing up here. Who was, was the jam kind of the lead of the mod revival? Yeah, or, they yeah. were like, they were the main band, really. And then you had all these ones that just shooted out of nowhere, like Purple Hearts and the Chords. And, and there was local ones like Speedball and um, the Leapers. There's a, there a whole stack of groups, you know, a lot and a lot of them from mainly from the southeast actually and a lot of them particularly from essex and east london there's a bit of a thing out a big mod revival thing um now, now the beach that you or the seaside town you grew up in was this the town where the mods and rockers would have battled in the 60s yeah there was stuff like that going on in the 60s yeah they're, they're not like um you see those famous photos they're more sure. i think they were, they were they were taken in like hastings and margate i think but they, they did have yeah lots of run-ins down there definitely and that carried on throughout the years you know into the 70s it was like you know the teds versus the punks and stuff you know? right and then then in the late 70s early 80s it was like the the skinheads it was like the skinheads versus everyone really <laughs> yeah right just like here it is like hated everything <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the 80s skinhead revival other. is like a different um you know the oi skinheads with like the bleached jeans and all that kind of stuff that was oh like god a, yeah they were everywhere yeah yeah, they, they were horrible. I mean, like you know, <laughs> yeah, I've got no no fond memories of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Same with over on this side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were like I, I remember those bank holidays down there. Then they'd they'd come down and the trains would be full of them, and the police would try and send them straight back up to London or wherever. But they, a lot of them would get through and just yeah, rampage along. You know, just like, it's just yeah, just complete yobbos. I can't imagine. Can't imagine many of those kids even made it out of the eighties, really. You yeah, know, you know, yeah. Weird, weirdly, like not long ago, I was walking through this park in London, and I saw this group of like, older guys. We're well, not old, like fifties, you know, like pre our kind of age, and um, and uh, they were like sitting there drinking in the afternoon. So these like kind of drunk guys, and I, as I walked past, got really close, and one of them had that "Made in London" tattooed on his forehead. You know, like an old, 
Right, old skinhead. skinhead. Yeah, and there he is, like a survivor of those days. You know what I mean? It's quite weird actually seeing it. You know. But, yeah, I saw one of those guys when I was in London. My brother lives in London, and I was visiting him. And I went to some outdoor market, and one of the fruit vendor guys had a little cross between his eyes yeah. and a made in England. And, I, and he was an yeah. old, older guy. And I was like, oh, look at that old yeah, skinhead yeah. selling uh, old skinhead, gourds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah nasty. But yeah, so I, yeah, I got into that mod revival thing. I mean, it's partly because I really like the clothes and the way it looked. I, it was just really quite, quite exciting. It was a real. It seemed like a real move on from the whole punk rock thing, right? Um, although I like I like the punk rock music. I didn't like. I wasn't so crazy about the whole look of it at the time. I thought I liked how these like mod kids were dressing, you know. So I sort of fell into that, and it was also because my sister was like she'd already been into like all that other stuff, and it was almost like finding my own thing, right? You know, like I didn't want to like come home and say, "Hey, I've got the new like." Killing Joke album or something. You know what I mean? It was a bit like a, I wanted to be different sort of thing. Sure. So I sort of found, I sort of fell into that sort of 60s thing. Although at the time I didn't know what it was, like mod revival. I didn't even understand what it was a revival of. Right. Yeah. You, you know? couldn't just Google it and find out. Yeah. yeah I thought, what is it? Yeah, what will be reviving? You know? <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> but I was all for it. You know, I was gung ho. Happy to revive what you did. Happy to revive. <laughs> Whatever it was, I was, yeah, I believed. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, Did you have a group of friends who were also mods? Yeah, like at school, like a lot of kids were into it, you know, mm. it was a, and it was a young scene, you know. I think people in the bands were a bit older. They were like more like probably in their late teens and stuff, you know, and maybe early 20s, some of them, but it kind of cut off there, I think, you know. But there was a real um, young teenage scene, you know, and it was a. Uh, that first that first wave of the mod revival didn't really last that long, like a couple of years, and a lot a lot of the kids that were into it then just graduated into other scenes that were coming up, you know. So I think once the jam broke up in eighty two, it was kind of like it signalled the end of that first wave mm. of it in a way. And then the mod revival then it kind of petered out, but the mod scene kind of went deeper underground after that, you know, and the, it it grew less in numbers, but it became more militant. It came, became more like um like serious 60s kind of kids you know mm. it was like became more interesting um yeah and i sort of followed that through for a little while but i was never that i was never that committed to it because it was quite strict you know it was a bit like a bit like being at school or something really you know it was all a bit like rules and regulations you know yeah you exactly right boots and things yeah it's like what is this like some like being in the army or something like, i don't know i i found it a bit uptight and then I don't know. I think at that point I started discovering other stuff. I started going, to, I sort of got into like other bands, like a birthday party. I got into, started falling into that. And I started, met a bunch of other kids that were like at another school that were more into like the gun club and the birthday party and the cramps and stuff. And they seemed really interesting. You know, they seemed like they were just in a, in a whole different thing. And I started hanging out, hanging out with them. And then from that, from discovering like the cramps and stuff, I started realizing that most of their songs or about half of their songs are cover versions and a lot of them are like a little obscure 60s bands it's what brought me back into the 60s thing again you know yeah and 50s I mean, even with the cramps you yeah know. i found that really fascinating it's almost like that scene going from this like you described the mod revival as getting so um you know deep and underground and specific and what what do you want you know into the details of it it's almost like that scene you discovered afterwards um, and heading into the music that's covered in the scene in between book, 
um, it's like the sixties influences there, but it's not yeah. religiously tied to yeah, exactly. reviving it. It's just taking the best yeah. elements and updating them and yeah, definitely folding them and into that, now. Yeah. And those scenes, I guess they're all, they're all like post-punk scenes in a way. They're, they're all different strands of post-punk, you know, it's like, there's so many sort of fractures at that time. Right. And, um, the indie scene didn't really exist then really. It wasn't really happening. It was, it was still like bubbling under, you know, so you had like, you had bands like TVPs that had been going for years since the late seventies, but they weren't really affiliated with anything else. Really. That's the they television really, personalities. Yeah, yeah, they weren't really affiliated with the mod revival. They were they were more classed as still like a post punk band to some people, I think. But over time, like I saw almost like a little scene around them started coming up, you know, and that's probably partly to do with Alan McGee and that in you know, early creation stuff, and you know. But Dan Tracy he had a label, a record label called Wham. Wham Records, and um, that's how I found out about bands like the Pastels and stuff. The Pastels put an EP out on Wham, and but he also put out some stuff that was a bit more like late mod revival kind of thing, you know. Like, and there was a local South End band called La Matt, who actually I didn't like at all, really. But they'd they'd they'd, they'd sprouted out of that band, the Leapers, but they ended up having a couple couple of records out on Wham which is quite weird. I never heard of Wham till then. And when I, when I saw their record was on Wham, I thought, what's Wham? You know, you kind of, I thought it looked cool, the logo and everything. It has like know? two A's, right? W-H-A-A-M. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like the Lichtenstein Wham. Yeah. You know? So, um, and where was that thought, label out of? What, what, what city? Out of London. Oh, okay. Wham was London. Yeah. It was, um, I can't think where about South London, I think possibly where, wherever he was living at that time. It was his, his, his label with Ed Ball from the times mm. and, um, O level. So, yeah, and they put out a bunch of, like, just stuff that was in that kind of interim between, like, the post, the real tail end of the mod revival into the kind of like, the indie era, or what, what became known as, you know? It was, like, a, like a prelude to, like, bands like GC Mary Chain and that kind of thing, you know? So I started going to see more stuff like that, you know? It was just what was happening at the time. Like, I saw the um, the Gun Club once, and the uh, support band was a scientist, you know, Australian band. Right. I got really into them. I thought they were amazing. Like on like live, they were just like really delinquent, but in a real like like inward way. You know, they weren't really trying or they weren't jumping around or anything. It was like really they was like ignoring the audience and stuff. But the singer, like Kim Salmon, like, he, he pulled all the strings of his guitar at one point in the set. Like just like like literally pulled them off. It took ages, and it was just making this like real horrendous like feedback. But the whole thing was such a like like strenuous. It's like the op- opposite of like a sort of Jimi Hendrix thing. It was like right. really like, just a labored, of, yeah, really labored. Yeah, one of the ages, he was like pulling the strings off, and it was like, What are you, what are you doing? Like, you haven't got a guitar anymore now, <laughs> but it was just like, <laughs> it was brilliant. They just carried on playing, it's like, kind of, yeah, two chord type thing, like repetition, you know, repetition sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I started going to see them quite a lot, and then. Then that kind of that other scene started growing up almost around it at that time, really. You know, there's other other bands that started popping up. You know, this is the birth of indie, and and you you say in your book, you, uh, or I think it's a passage you wrote about how indie is like the term you have to settle on because there's no other real yeah. good name for this scene you're talking about because indie seems so yeah. broad and it's kind of an imperfect way to describe yeah. a scene because it could describe many scenes but yeah why did you settle on indie um there's no other real name for that the scene that we're talking about 
not 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 so much i mean i think that's just the, the name that came became synonymous with like guitar music it's underground guitar music in the uk at that time i mean i think initially it was called like you get like the independent charts and the nme and sounds oh, and I stuff you know? mm-hmm. and then they started abbreviating it to the indie right but independent sounded better i thought you know if you said the whole word it sounded kind of better a minute it's that people started saying indie it just Although it kind of like you know rolled off the tongue quite easy, I don't know. It was it was never quite right. It never really fitted quite right. I think you know it was a bit too just like yeah, just too loose. I think you know, but it's just what stuck, you know, and everyone used it, and, and it's just you got to give into it. Yeah, I think eventually, otherwise, <laughs> yeah, you end up concocting these terms that no one really understands anyway. You know, I can for- save those like obscure ones for the scene, you know, for the right, Instagram, the yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, um, you know, like the scene we're talking about, the, the like the Instagram feed, a scene in between, is different from the book. The book yeah. is the book is very specifically about this scene we're talking about, which is yeah. guitar rock in guitar music in Britain between eighty and eighty eight, kind of yeah. is the, the time, roughly. Um, That's it. Yeah. And uh, you know, for me, I didn't really discover that music. As it was happening, I was still into punk and hardcore American style. Yeah. Um, but like when I started working at K Records in the early 90s, that was kind of really, in some ways, my introduction to understanding that scene as a scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they put out Heavenly being an offshoot of Tallulah Gosh, um, the McTells, the Pastels. And oh, that was kind of a scene that Calvin was very into and, and very yeah. knowledgeable about and connected to. Oh, absolutely. Connected to. I mean, he was like this, the American sort of figurehead, wasn't he, really? I think. Yeah, you know, that's what I would say. Definitely at that point, you know, with those K newsletters and stuff, he you you was very much switched on with every obscure band over here. And I think he was corresponding with everyone. I know he used to write to Gina and the Marine Girls, he used to write to debsy and the dolly mixture and he just he had correspondence of loads of people you know like from really early on i'm talking from the very early 80s you know? right and um they played over here actually be happening played here in like 88 and i somehow missed that and then i was like well, i really don't know what happened there i think i found out about it like two days later someone oh. said to me, oh, <laughs> surprised you didn't go to that and i'm like what you know it's just like ridiculous crap yeah really bad and then you know i saw him again a bunch of times when I came to San Francisco a couple of years later, but yeah, I'd like to have seen them then. And they did a whole tour over here with the Vaselines, actually. It was kind of, you know, all over the place. And just like weird little places, you know, like church halls and a few pubs and stuff, you know, but yeah. But yeah, Calvin, yeah, he was like, um, he was the American connection in a way, I think, you know. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with that. Yeah. And I loved all those K records. When I, when I discovered K, it was fantastic. It's like another world opening up again, you know, it's like, you know. They're when single. did you become aware of K? Probably around that time. Probably not until about eighty-seven, eighty-eight. And then I bought I bought Jamboree when it came out, like the UK because it came out here in the UK. Stephen Pastel put it out on his fifty-third and third records, um, and it came with a little flexi and stuff. I got that, and then yeah, Rough Trade UK put out the first album as well. So I went out and got that, and then. Then I bought the other stuff, like the import singles. You know, you could buy, you could find all that stuff over here then quite easily. They're quite a good distribution over here, I think. I guess probably via Rough Trade, like the Cartel or something, you know. 
but yeah i know i just started buying other bands on k and then you know just exploring the the pacific northwest a little bit you know i bought records by the uh u-men and you know, stuff like that you know yep from seattle it seemed really exciting you know what was going on up there and uh, yeah uh girl trouble and you know uh and there's other stuff that i read about but never heard like mythical bands you know i read about like I remember reading somewhere about that soldier ep oh yeah <laughs> and i thought that just sounds like the best record ever it's an incredible record you yeah. heard it now of course i've got it i've got it now yeah, yeah. Like years later but it took me it took me a while to find it and then i found a copy yeah years yeah, a few years later and then it was reissued when it like bag of hammers did a reissue of it oh know? i didn't know that yeah there was that too but yeah, they were yeah. obscure even if you lived in seattle yeah <laughs> there's a farts connection though isn't there like uh, yeah there is um well one of them but there's a paul soldier was in the farts yes yeah, it's, it's him is it paul soldier yeah. yeah i think so but yeah i knew about the farts because their records came out here too actually their first oh, yeah. EP came out here classic on, yeah you've got a brain and all that stuff. yeah yeah that's really good I, that's, that's one of the that's one of the few american hardcore records i probably heard at the time you know because that that was here quite available that first ep with reagan on the front you know yeah was that the on the alternative tentacles because they put it out themselves yeah, and then yeah. it was okay yeah. yeah yeah i never saw the first original pressing of that yeah i've got and a then, copy but there's only like 500 of them i think in, yeah, in existence yeah, farts records yeah 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 i'd love to get that but then there are not many american bands at that point for the american like hardcore stuff like, yeah you'd have to dig pretty deep to find out about other bands the ones you all heard about were like black flag and all the bands that toured here like mdc and stuff you know but even minor threat that you couldn't really find their records here very easily hmm. did you go to hardcore shows in that era like the early went, 80s no nah, not really i went to a few more like a narco kind of more punk kind of ones yeah. so like lo- local bands than south end like i saw band the cynics mm-hmm. you know, um they were really local and cronstadt uprising they did a few records on my, uh, is it Mortar Hate or Spider Leg? They're like, they were like, they were on that bull, one of those bullshit detector compilations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, yeah, I saw a few of those bands. Um, I saw like Killing Joke quite early on, and um, yeah, more like pretty more post punk things. But yeah, I wasn't going to like, um, I wasn't going to discharge concerts or anything, or you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I probably should have done, but there weren't any locally. I, you know, I've had to just trawled up for London for that. I did that all the time to see bands I was more in, interested in, but I wouldn't go up to like the Hundred Club for the punk gigs or anything. That whole UK eighty two thing was like a bit of a, I don't know, that was a bit of a quite closed off thing in a way. You know, and it seemed like even then you had like the kids that were like into like a narco, they're more like the crass kind of kids. You know, they're often a bit more probably quite cliched in a way. All, all the kids I knew that were into that all went to the grammar school. They're all a bit more academic, you know, they're a bit like, the, you know, they're quite political and it was all, you know, it was less about the music, more about the message sort of thing. Yeah. And then, you know, and then I went to the secondary modern school. It was more like the, kind of, more the sort of basic kind of kids that went there. And then that's where you had like exploited fans and GBH fans. It was more that, you know, like just the studs and the it's about the mohawk, not the not yeah. The it was like that kind of thing. So even then, you almost had two different camps of the of that second wave. You know, right? They'd cross over, obviously, but the the, um, the anarcho lot seemed more interesting. I thought, you know, they had more ideas of what was going on. I think, and that 
the music was more diverse, you know, I think, you know, I think a lot of that British, like those, those bands like anti nowhere league and stuff and that, I don't know. It's a little cartoonish. Yeah. It's a bit of a pastiche almost. Isn't yeah. It? You know, yeah. I think like, I don't know really. And it was a bit off the peg as well. They just go into a shop, but you walk into a shop looking really just like, like anyone, like really average. And then, walk out looking like Watty like 10 minutes later, you know, yeah, you buy all that stuff off the peg, you know, it was all a bit, a bit of a cash in almost, I thought, you know, but then, yeah, it was interesting though. I mean, in retrospect now, if you saw anyone walking around looking like that, you'd be like, wow, you know, like an anarcho punk, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, I can't even remember the last time I saw anyone looking like that with, with like a, yeah, sort of flux of pink Indians big patch on or something. You, know? you got to so, come to Portland. You'll see plenty of them. Yeah. I've, I've heard there's a bit of a, renaissance up there isn't there or yeah something. yeah oh i almost never went away i mean the that punk that particular anarcho punk look is just a part of the culture yeah amazing yeah well, yeah. I, yeah i mean yeah, where i live now it's quite rural so you didn't see anything really that's you know? <laughs> <laughs> like you know sheep sheep it's a pretty <laughs> sheep yeah i mean i think stuff has happened around here over the years but not recently i think it was good around here i think you know just up the road in the medway towns you had all the um you know, Billy's childish groups, like the, you know, right. Rivers, and the milkshakes and the prisoners and the dentists and all that whole scene was happening just up the road. Like, but that was, yeah, like, you know, 35, 40, 40 years ago now, you know, but yeah. Interesting. Where did, where did that scene fit in with the larger indie scene? That, that scene is like a scene unto itself, actually. Hmm. That, that Medway scene is completely like a sort of cul-de-sac, you know, it's just closed off. Yeah, all the people that were in those bands they were all from that area they all grew up around each other same bunch of schools and yeah there's I mean you probably break it down there's quite a few bands but you probably break it down to about 20 people really the, mm. the real the one, the movers and the shakers you know um, but yeah it was, a, it was a it was a whole different thing what they had going on there you know it's quite strange really and a lot of those bands they'd play in London all the time all, all over the place I mean but you know, I actually went and saw them um, in a pub in in their home territory once. Like at the time, in about '83, went over there with a friend of mine. We got the train from Southend down to this little place called Tilbury, and you can get a, a ferry across the Thames. And the train back out to where they were from in Kent, up in in Rochester. It's got a real trek. And um, although where we grew up was like dead opposite Kent, actually, as the crow flies, about four miles. Mm. But you couldn't get to it. You just look at it across the river. So it's quite strange, actually. But uh, yeah, we went over there and like witnessed it like firsthand, like locally. You know, what was it like? Yeah, it was really exciting. Really exciting. And there's a lot of like, yeah, kind of. Um, it's quite. Those towns are quite rough. You know, they're quite rough and ready little towns. You know, they're like old docking towns, and you know, it's like, you know, so they're quite. Yeah, it's quite um, quite an eye opener in a way. And a lot of kids are like kind of like moddy looking kids there, and a real mishmash, you know, because it's, cause it's like a more of a provincial thing. You don't get everyone looking the same. I think if you grow up anywhere that's not in a city set, like a big city centre, when you're like one of those kids that's not into like the mainstream, you've always you've got to be more accepting of other people that are like you, but they might not be like you really at all, you know. So it's a bit like there's all kinds of people. There's a few like bikers there and all kinds of like just oddball people, you know, just local misfits really. Right. But it was really cool when we saw like the milkshakes there. It was great to see them on their home territory. It was a real yes. trick, you know. Right. And then we could, yeah, usual, usual sort of like, you know, 
teenage thing we couldn't get back you know we we missed the last ferry and like slept in a playground like i slept on a slide <laughs> playground. that sounds yeah. nice yeah yeah head pointing up i imagine yeah 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 <laughs> but it was all worth it you know yeah yeah that's yeah, it's all about you're yeah. back. And, you're back and still handle sleeping on a metal slide. Yeah, you know, slide. It seemed kind of quite interesting at the time. But um, yeah, so that that was a whole different thing they had going on over there. It was quite unique, really. Um, One thing I thought of was when you were talking about the provincial aspect of that scene, and I, I was thinking about um, in your book. You, the point is made quite often that that indie scene we're talking about. Um, 80 to 88 guitar music in Britain. Um, a lot of those bands came from smaller towns and weren't from the big yeah, uh, think, cities. Yeah. Particularly with that, with that scene, I think, you know, um, yeah, I think like with that, say the first wave of punk or whatever, you had a lot of bands that were, were quite metropolitan and, and from London and, you know, Manchester and bigger cities. But with this one, with the post-punk and then into the whole indie era, like most bands, it weren't from London. It just wasn't, London wasn't the Mecca anymore in a way, you know, like you go and see gigs there and stuff, but it was like, it lost. Um, I mean, I think the music press was all based in London and like they, they were completely disinterested in any kind of like anything like that kind of those kind of scenes, those small guitar scenes, you know, mm. they were like just dismissed, you know? So it's a bit like all this stuff went on there was a whole like another world that went on that wasn't kind of included in the, in the music papers. They just talked about what they decided was like worthy at that moment, you know, and London just wasn't really the place, you know, although, you know, I'd probably say the same nowadays. It's not really much of a draw nowadays. You no, know, really. I think it's probably even less than it was then in a way, but then it was more like you just go to gigs there and meet people there, but you wouldn't really need to kind of be there or, you know what I mean? It was just like a real, it's just so, such a sort of expensive place, you know. Like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was thinking about how a lot of cities in America have become ghost towns for art and music because yeah. they're just too expensive and yeah. and hard to do anything. And, you know, Absolutely. to have a band, obviously, you need a place to practice. you got to move stuff yeah. around. You need to live. It's like... You can't do it. I mean, I, th- I guess places more like out, outer suburbs, you get, you know, pockets where people would live and... I mean, in the eighties, a lot of London was still squatted. Actually, like in East London, particularly, like whole parts of Hackney was all whole roads were like squatted. Really, you know, it was like a forgotten area. You know, um, but that was yeah. That that again was more that kind of a narco thing. I think you know. Yeah. For this scene, it was more provincial. The bands weren't even from London. Like the, the real hotbed of activity was Glasgow, where most most of those groups came from. The real you know the real pivotal groups like the Pastels and um you know boy hairdressers and you know primal scream early on and um gc mary chamber from the outskirts uh there's loads bmx bandits there's just like countless bands that are from th- that one city and then you got a few that are from you know bristol and birmingham and stuff you know but that that real jangly mid-80s sort of thing was more of a scottish thing actually that was like glasgow is definitely the capital of that scene hmm. you know? And they would play down, play down south, and that you know. But yeah, yeah, interesting. But then um, I think that sort of started winding down probably by about yeah. That's why I cut the book of an eighty-eight. Actually, it all starts winding down really. And you kind of uh, note that the wind down led to the, or it was the 
the nail in the coffin is the quote unquote baggy era, the the yeah, yeah. Madchester yeah. kind of yeah, that era. Well, yeah, that sort of started kicking in, and I think like yeah, probably a little bit earlier. I mean, partly partly say that the whole E phenomena started kicking in about eighty seven, and I think that's what the, that's what the book is in a way. It's like it's like post post punk and post mod revival, and then it's um, pre E. Pre, <laughs> pre ecstasy, yeah, <laughs> which had quite a big impact here, you know? yeah. And it's pre and it's pre grunge, you know, because that was massive here too. The right. whole, you know, the whole favoritism that English bands and British bands became largely just a, quite a passe, passe idea, really. And then all of a sudden, it was like yeah, sub pop mania, you know. And like eighty nine was like crazy, that like always kids wearing like loser baseball caps and that it just really blew up here in a big way were you um, into that scene at all um no i was more into the k k scene right at that point um and just yeah and that and then just listened to lots of 60s records really and then i came to san francisco i lived there for a few years um and i got yeah when i was there like i said i saw like beat happening a bunch of times and that was more that era, I guess that early kind of Riot Girl era and that kind of thing, which actually I thought was really exciting. It seemed like another, the energy of it was a bit like the one that was going on down like over here in like a few years earlier, you know, that kind of mid eighties, like indie explosion. It seemed a bit like that. Yeah. Like the energy was just really, I felt like it was something that was like really actually happening. But, um, although, you know, I saw a, quite a lot of those gigs, but you know, I wasn't really, um, I think I like those Riot Gold bands, but I think uh, musically I didn't find them that exciting. But I thought the whole ideally, sort of ideology of it all was really exciting. You know, it's just like a real. It seemed like an extension of like bands like you know, like, obviously like Raincoats and Kleenex and stuff. And then, but then with a bit, a bit of like kind of Toluda Gosh and that, you know, a bit of like almost like mid eighties like indie girl kind of thing. You know, I remember going to this concert, going to a Beat Hatman concert in Oakland. I think that'd be about ninety. I hadn't been there very long. And um, in a warehouse, and there was um, that band Unwound was supporting them. Um, and then there was this, you know, different groups of kids that were there and stuff, you know. But there was one group of girls that were there I thought looked really interesting, and they they had those like kind of like sixties kind of glasses on and stuff, and that kind of, yeah. like, kind of mod hair, you know. And they had like, and a couple of them were wearing, like little backpacks and stuff. There's like a bit of a backpack thing going on, and I never seen that before. <laughs> backpack kind of punk thing yeah yeah for sure I, that's like a new one then and i i thought they're really what are they i wonder what they're into you know and i guess i guess they were just like kind of they were on that kind of cusp of that kind of riot girl thing you know right like, i thought this is brilliant really like a proper like grassroots scene kind of happening before your eyes you know whereas in the in the uk by then it was all like just everyone's just like eat out of their heads you know or or just grunging it you know yeah, it sort of got, it lost that. I think it had gone full circle a bit, you know, and like just I don't know, really. It seemed like there wasn't really much of a scene anymore like in the UK by about ninety. And I was never into all that baggy stuff, and I thought that was just like horrendous, actually. You know, it was so <laughs> main. It was just really mainstream, and it was quite loutish. the whole, The whole thing was quite like a bit macho. Yeah, that was an interesting aspect of it, wasn't it? That yeah. it was like uh, this kind of E, peace and love dancing, but it had this very laddish kind of uh, 
lager lout vibe yeah. too you know yeah i'm really not i'm not into that at all that whole like, sort of yobbo culture I've, I've seen enough of that with the whole skinhead thing I, you know it's almost like skinheads skinheads on e you know with like long hair it was a bit like that same mm. sort of that's what yeah it mystified me but yeah, actually at the time i was glad to be somewhere else and witness what was going on in the states you know i didn't, I didn't go to the thing in olympia the big you know the big pop thing what it was called the international ipu yeah, I wish I had. I was there when that was going on. And um, yeah, I just didn't have enough money. I just couldn't get my act together, you know what I mean, to get up there. But did you go to that? Yes, I did. Yeah. And I wish I had. Yeah, it was an amazing. I mean, when I was talking with Ian Mackay on my 50th episode, he was talking about that as one of the most, his in his mind, the archetypal true music festival, you know, like yeah. for music, by music you know yeah. put on by musicians for music people and just so underground and yet the whole city was completely transformed for days amazing yeah it seemed like a real kind of pivotal moment were you living in olympia then um there? no that was actually the thing that inspired me to move there because we were up there i was i was from the northwest originally and i wanted to move back yeah. from california so i right. we went up there looking for the town and then of course once we spent that weekend in olympia we were like we got to do this yeah right I mean, yeah. There's very few little mid-sized cities in America that had as much going on as Olympia, that's for sure. That's mad, isn't it? It's a tiny uh, place. I, is it? I never went up there. You know, I wanted to, yeah. But um, I was in a little band in San Francisco. There was that vague rumor that we might be invited to play that, actually. What was your band we all, called? We, I was in a little band called Marzipan. Marzipan. Yeah. We did a single on a local label called EchoNet at the time um that's that 91 i think what yeah. kind of music was that how would you describe that band that was um yeah it was sort of trebly sort of um kind of quite fuzzed out not, not fuzzed out more it's like trebled out kind of guitars and um it's quite sort of um it's quite garagey but it's quite sort of um it was it was produced by the guy maz from the mummies Do you remember the mummies oh yeah of course um and we recorded it in their studio which is like in their house which is used to be on um right on a cliff edge by in a place called pacifica oh yeah just down the coast a bit like we used to get the bark down to um daily city i think it was called yeah. and then Mads would pick it up pick us up in his car and drive us to this house apparently that house has fallen into the sea subsequently so oh then, erosion yeah yeah but um yeah, so we went there. We recorded it on their gear. We took our own guitars, but we used their amps. You know, they had like, they had like just all these old sixties Fenders, and it was all complete that like, sort of surf kind of stuff. They had right. So probably part of the way the single sounds because the gear we were using. But it's um, yeah, we just recorded it. You know, recorded it really loud, and then we mastered it really loud. We put the treble right up and like the bass down. So it's just like really kind of screechy. Um, yeah, it's sort of quite it's quite jangly. I mean, it's sort of like you know. It's kind of all right, I think. You know, it sort of stood the test of time. You know, I wanted. It, I, I think I wanted to sound more sixties at the time. And but the other guys in the band, we were all into different stuff. Like one of the, one of them was really into like flying nun bands. You know, like the you know, he was really into like the Chills and the Clean and the Bats and always like New Zealand flying yeah. nun group. He really wanted that kind of sound to it, which was cool. You know, um, and one of the other guys was like, yeah, just more. He kind of like, he was quite accepting of everything, but he was more into like the psych and stuff, you know. He wanted, mm -hmm. he wanted to sound more more like the first Pink Floyd album or something, I think, you know. So yeah, it was a bit of a mishmash of people kind of stuck together, 
it kind of worked though. But then, yeah, like, you know, like a lot of bands, it kind of evaporated quite quickly, you know, so it just dissolved. We were, we were going to do a second single with Slumberland, but we recorded it and everything. And then the band had started falling to pieces. And then Michael just decided not to put it out. Cause he didn't want to put a record out of a band that didn't exist anymore. Right. Or barely existed, you know, it's fair enough, you know. That's still there in the vault somewhere. You know, maybe maybe one day. When did you start playing music? Um, oh, not till I was a bit older. I mean, I was in a band in London in um, uh, eighty six, eighty seven. I was like eighteen, nineteen, um, and that was a garage band, like a straight up sixties garage band thing uh, called the Mistreaters, and that that had evolved out of um, two other groups that were around then that were both really good. There's a band called The Margin of Sanity that were really good. And they were like, um, they were almost like London's answers, like, you know, that Telltale Hearts or something, like that one of those like, kind of San Diego bands, you know. Right. Well, that's a, it's great that you brought them up. Um, so you were aware of, because, I mean, this, at the time when I was a kid in San Diego and dating the sister, little sister of the singer of the Telltale Hearts. Oh, the Ray and- Brown. Yeah, Ray Brandis. Yeah, yeah. And his his uh sister Marta was my first girlfriend. And oh, uh yeah, and and I didn't know that scene at all. Yeah, you know, yeah. having, having just moved there and being a hardcore yeah, yeah. punk kid. And mm-hmm. I was very fascinated by it, you know, cuz I just got this entree into it through them. Yeah. And uh it was so interesting, but and I I just assumed that maybe there was that scene existed in other cities in San Diego or uh, in America too, but I don't think there really were other scenes. Yeah. That was like San Diego was the 60s garage rock scene yeah definitely the capital i think there and i guess i guess in la to a degree because a lot of it was um a lot of those bands put out records on vox records right subsidiary of bomb you know greg greg shaw's in like empire and um they were mostly uh san diego i think you know like the um grave digger five and those bands were really good and that primates in la and uh yeah, most of them were like Southern California. You had a few over on the East Coast, you had, like Chesterfield Kings over on the East Coast. Right. And, but that was kind of like they'd been already going for a few years anyway. But I think the um with the San Diego bands, it started with the Craw Daddies, you know, that was like Ron, Ron Silver. I think I think he formed them like in like seventy eight or something. And then Mike Stacks, he moved over there from from uh, the Yorkshire in England. He moved over there and like 79 or something he he bought the lp and wrote to the band saying oh, i love your lp or something and they wrote back to him saying uh and, and in his letter he says oh i play bass but you know i can't find anyone to be in a band with or something and they wrote back to him saying oh, my bass player's just left do you want to do you want to join so he, he just moved out there on a whim and stayed there forever it's kind of crazy you know he started that magazine ugly things and that you know a classic yeah and that was like revelationary for a lot of people I and mean, myself you know completely but it was based out of there it's like an english guy based in you know down in san diego right I yeah aware, i was aware of all that stuff but it wasn't easy to find over here you know i found i i picked up a crawl daddy's record second hand probably in about like 83 or something and i a guy um in the record shop he said oh you probably like this and i thought it was a 60s band at first at a, gl- at a glance like a sort of Yardbirds type thing, you know, and he's like, Oh no, it's like a current band. And I was like, This is just amazing. Like, they're doing this, yeah, they're very uh, true to form. Yeah, I said, Nothing like that in the UK was anywhere close to that, you know. And um, so from there on in, I sought out their other records and then, you know, 
later on started finding out about his other bands that are from California. It all kind of opened up, you know, completely. But they never, none of those bands ever played the UK or anything. I don't think they'd be right. played outside of California hardly, really. I think. No, there wasn't. They didn't have the touring network that the punk no. bands had. You know? No, they didn't have it. It wasn't a big enough scene. No, and they 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 could have come to London and there'd only be like probably thirty people there or something. That'd be like you know of, of that kind of scene. It was quite small, you know. Um, but yeah, anyway, I was in this band. Um, yeah, the Mistreaters that had splintered off from um, the Margin of Sanity. Actually, one of those guys from the margin, he'd he'd lived in he lived in San Diego for about a year. Hmm. Um, prior to that, he was there in about eighty five, and had an American girlfriend and all this kind of stuff. And he he saw all those bands, you know. He kind of brought that back over with him a bit, saying that the scene there is just crazy. You know, like you go to go to gigs, there's like hundreds of people there, and like everyone's into it. And I'm like, this is mental because like <laughs> the mod scene here was big, but that wasn't the mod scene, you know, it was like different. Yeah. That's the other thing about San Diego is it had a very distinctive, huge mod scene that, that again, I don't know any other city that had that level of a a real, I mean, that, that scene of course mingled with the telltale heart scene quite a bit, you know, overlapped a lot and the punk scene too. But yeah, it was weird. San Diego. I mean, I always thought maybe the weather had something to do with it because you know, it's nice scooter riding, (laughs) but then scooters are popular in London and, or it's like, Oh Yeah. Oh god, I was just I was obsessed by, especially California at that point. I thought, my god, it just sounds it's got everything, you know. But I didn't get out there till ninety, and I went. By the time I got there, it was just like a distant memory, mm. you know. I meet, met a lot of those guys, and they're talking about like the old days, you know, like oh, back in the day, you know, like four years ago, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like it all it all happened, you know, like you know, yeah. hardcore, hardcore had happened, and the Paisley Underground had happened, and then the whole sixties scene. Had, been and gone and it was like wow what's left but then that's you know there was still other stuff going on you know right but um, that's interesting you bring up that short uh time span of how things change so fast like because we were talking at the beginning of the conversation about you know needing to know what eras and times and relationship spans and things had to one another um, and have kids nowadays don't necessarily care about that stuff but i'm the more I look back, the more fascinated I am about the brevity of a lot of those scenes. I mean, like when I think of hardcore in America, you know, it's like really like four years, five years tops, yeah. you know, it's like 80 to 85 yeah. before it started becoming something you might think or fracturing into fracturing. Sub, subgroups and whatnot. Crossover and that kind of thing. Yeah. Straight edge and just the codified, yeah. codified, you know, sub genres. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, I mean, I think, yeah. It's the same. It's a, yeah, in the UK it was the same thing. Like I was saying, I was in that band, the Mistreaters, and it was all very. Um, they were very strict about it. Those guys, what they were into, it was it was militant sixties band, you know. Yeah, and they were very unforgiving, unforgiving of anything else, you know. Like, um, like I went to a, one of the one of those guys, um, one of the blokes he worked with, went and saw bands all the time, and this guy he worked with saw me one night at a Spaceman Three concert. And then reported it back to this guy <laughs> the next day, you know, the next, the next band rehearsal, I was like, you know, kind of like interrogated, you know, like what's going on? You know, <laughs> what, what were you doing? What were you doing there? You know, and I was like, they're really good. And he's like, no, no, we don't do that kind of thing. Like we're like, we're 64, 65. There has to be limits. 
Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is like suffocating. Yeah, I heard the crawdaddies wouldn't use any piece of equipment newer than 65 like i couldn't believe it to record like hardcore like even chords and stuff like this has to yeah. everything has to be old oh god yeah they, they definitely nailed it i think i think probably more so in those bands that came along a little bit later in a way but there was a chart with the mistreaters we, on that scene we were quite you know although we only played tiny, tiny little clubs we actually toured a couple of times in europe and that you know just played little clubs the same as we would in london but just in somewhere else so we went to like you know like Amsterdam and, you know, and, uh, like uh, Berlin and we went to like Sweden and stuff, you know, and, like we went to all these little places, but they were all kind of the same, you know, you just meet the same kind of 50 people again, but they were kind of like, you know, different, but the same kind of thing. It was kind Dif- of weird. Different accents, same haircut. Yeah, <laughs> but it was interesting. And then um, one time Greg Shaw was over in London and uh, he came to one of our gigs and afterwards he was like, oh yeah, you guys... I'm going to put a record out by you on Vox. You know, you're perfect because the Telltale Hearts are breaking up um, and you can kind of carry that thing on. So I need I need a band like that that kind of carries on that kind of R&B kind of garage thing. You know, and I was like, and at the time, I was like, my mind was blown, you know. I was like, wow. Awesome. I've like peaked already, you know, since I'm like <laughs> 19 and we're going to have a record out on Vox and hopefully move to San Diego or something. But none of it actually happened. I think he was just like, you know, don't know what he was like looking for free drinks or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's a nice guy, but I think he kind of like, he spun that line quite a bit, I think with people, you know, sure. But I wouldn't have minded whatever he did. If I, you know, at the time being out on a record out on Vox M was like pretty amazing, you know, and no, no European bands had done that at that point. You know what I mean? So, oh like, yeah. Would have been a coup. Yeah. Would have been quite a good, yeah. I heard yeah. that he has one of the most impressive record collections of anyone. I mean, I remember when I worked for Jello Biafra, Biafra said that second to me, I mean, I'm competing only with him or something yeah. in terms of like the sheer scale of his collection. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, he did. He used to, I think he used to have security guards like working there. Like he had it in a separate building. I had it like in a, like a lockup sort of warehouse place or something. Wow. Yeah, he had like, um, I never went to it. I know a couple of guys that did go to it. And, you know, he had like unplayed copies of lots of records, like little stashes of like, you know, unplayed 60s EPs. And, but he, obviously he'd been buying it since just after the time, really. Right. He was, he's like the first guy to start just amassing it, you know. So he didn't, really have, any, he didn't have any competition. Yeah, right. He, he kind of made it, you know, he kind of created these subgenres to some degree, you know, so... There's only at that point you look at like the his magazine bomb. I mean that started in like what seventy three, seventy four. Yeah, I mean, and that, those records he was like, you know, talking about were, you know, all under like ten years old. Then you know it was so he was just so hot on the whole thing. I don't know, it was amazing, quite a visionary guy, you know. Oh yeah, but, for sure. Um, yeah, actually, I see. I used to be friends with a guy. Um, in South End that knew him in the seventies, um, and he was a guy called Ed Ed Hollis, and he was um, Eddie from Eddie and the Hot Rods. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, but he was um, he was never in the band. He was just um, he was their producer. Um, but it was like Eddie and the Hot Rods. They, they had a good good sounding name, but Eddie wasn't actually in the group. But yeah, he was. Oh. Um, he 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 got to know. Uh, Greg Short in the mid seventies, you know, sort of corresponding through Bomp magazine and buying records off of him, 
And uh, I think one time he went over and stayed with um, Jeff Connolly, you know, who's that mono man from DMZ. Right. And, and Greg Shaw was there at the same time. And it was like the three of them sort of thing, like just scouring these record shops in like Boston and stuff and that, you know, and getting all these like, unplayed copies of 60s records and that for nothing, you know. And it's, it's quite, yeah, this guy Ed was, this guy Ed was a real education actually, meeting him. I used to work in a little secondhand record shop in South End that sold mainly bootlegs. That was their main revenue was like bootleg cassettes. You know, they'd like just like, like heaps of them. <laughs> Amazing. Like, and I used to run off copies behind the counter. They're like a machine that you could do tape to tape really quickly. Yeah, right. And you cut out the you cut out the photocopied um, sleeves and just stick it on. You know, it's like, like it had a whole thing going on. They'd sell like every week. They'd sell like hundreds of hundreds of these like bootleg cassettes by anyone you can think of. You know, whatever was like happening that week, like live, like live prints. You know, or like live U two and you know that. And they sold quite a few like indie things as well, but it's largely just like mainstream rock. You know, like and madonna and whatever was like big bootlegging business you know but yeah and then he used to come in there to sell bits of like old records that he had duplicates of and all this kind of stuff and i got to know him and so i started going to his house and like hanging out with him yeah pretty amazing he just had this huge you know collection of records you know a lot of it had come via greg shaw bizarrely enough you know although he lived in that little suburban house in like sort of seaside suburbia he had like a real link to america you know and he'd been out there a bunch of times and wow telling me about it and i was just like oh it's just it's got to go you know it's just like it just sounds just too much to handle edward ed was um his brother was a guy mark hollis from talk talk oh the band talk talk yeah that was his brother oh, they, they formed they'd, they'd formed it together in the late 70s and talk talk that was like named after that song by the music machine you know that right oh yeah yeah talk talk yeah 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 that's that one when they when they first formed the band, it was that's kind of where they were coming from, you know. But that soon went, I think, you know. Ed left and went to producing, and then his brother carried on with like talk talk sort of thing, you know. But yeah, so that was a another like local weird sort of South End connection, you know. And I met people subsequently over the years that kind of met him, and you know what I mean. It's like, but they're all like ten years older than me or fifteen years older than me. They're almost like they were too. They were like really young kids in the sixties, you know, right. They were almost like too young in the sixties to be involved, but they were like, they started just amassing all these records in the early seventies and like kind of ignoring what was going on around them a little bit, you know, like yeah. they, were, they were like out of time of everything, you know, but I guess there's only a few people like that. It was kind of like, you know, a bit of a network, you know? Yeah. yeah. I love that. <laughs> when did you start doing the a scene in between project, like uh, collecting the photos? And uh, I mean, some of the photos obviously are ones that you took, but a lot of them come from all over the place. When did that oh, yeah. project begin? Uh, probably about ten years ago. Now, I started. Um, I started a, um, a blog um, called called Leaders of Men, and that was really. Um, a place to put all my kind of like odds and ends like cuttings and um you know like record scans and just oddball photos and i just started like putting this almost like um it's almost like a scrapbook of ideas really right you know? and it was more like just mapping out you know the 80s 60s scenes and the 60s scenes but looked at from an 80s perspective and then looking at like the indie scene it was more like i was just sort like, of mapping out the idea in my head really um it sort of started there 
Well, I, I've been thinking about doing a book on the indie scene for a few years, but I didn't really just couldn't figure out how to do it, you know. And then I was doing that blog for a while, and people writing to me, a few people wrote to me saying, it's really interesting what you're doing, you know. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, I, 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 really, it was just for me to, like, put ideas down, you know. And then um, one time I went to a, a school fate, like, for my eldest daughter, who then was only about, like two or three, like a nursery school fate, you know. To explain and, to uh, people what a fate is, that's not a term oh, we know like in a, America. Yeah, like um, it's uh, like when a school puts on like a day for everyone to come and they've got like, you know, um, people selling stuff there and, you know, that kind of, and they've like activities going. It's like an open day for the school and the parents can come and the kids will, yeah, run around and that. It's like a sort of fun day. And they'll do little performances of music and yeah, things like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. stuff like that, yeah. I can't think what they call it in the States, actually. Yeah, I don't know if um, we have an equivalent. Open house, I guess. <laughs> open, yeah, kind of thing like that. And I was there, and I got chatting to this lady that was there that um, had a daughter there, too, the same age as mine. And we were just chatting there, just standing out, like, having an ice cream with me, standing around. And um, I was like, oh you know, what do you do then? And she's like, oh, I'm a publisher, you know, I publish books. And that's interesting. What kind, of, what kind of books? And she's like, well, you know, mainly they're about craft and, you know, mainly that and some children's like illustrated books and that, you know, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I said, I've got an idea for a book, you know, and I kind of told her the idea there on the spot of like an eight, like a, you know, looking at sort of chronicling the um, 80s UK guitar underground and the style of it. And and being quite specific and just looking at certain bands that were kind of like connected by the sixties but weren't really, you know, it was like more a bit more sort of like more of all vague, you know. And actually she thought she said, actually it sounds like an interesting idea, <laughs> whatever you're talking about. Um, let's meet in a cafe. And I thought, okay. She so can't think I can, I'm a complete like lunatic, you know. So <laughs> a few days later I met her in a cafe and I I brought along like a few just snippets of like cuttings from like old fanzines and a few record sleeves. And I was saying, I'd like to talk about the fashions, like, you know, indie kids wearing like anoraks and, you know, um, almost like wearing like sixties, like children's clothes and stuff. And just talk about that. Cause no one's ever discussed it before and, and talk about, you know, what, what they thought of it, what the musicians thought of it and where it came from and like why, what why and where do you think it kind of evolved in that you know and she thought it just sound like an interesting concept for a book and i thought okay great and she gave me the thumbs up she said okay let's just do it you know and you know just try and just try and get it to be published say like a year from now or something like just go away and like start researching you know i was like okay great so i had like the kind of green light from her um and then I just started reaching out to a few people I used to be pals with in the in the 80s, you know, and just started like kind of reconnecting with a few people. And from them and other people, I started re- connecting with other people I didn't know from then. And then I started just approaching people from bands. And it was kind of weird in a way because it was like um, open terrain, you know. It was like almost like uncharted territory because no one had ever done a, a book on that particular subject before of that right. era. right. right. I mean, you think how many books are on like punk rock, like English punk rock. There must be about hundred. Yeah. Endless. Endless, and they're still coming out like every week. It's like another book about. It blows Vicious. my mind that there's always another one. Yeah. <laughs> Who buys them? It's like how many more pictures do you want to see of like Sid Vicious or something? Right. It's like, ridiculous. And like, um, 
so th- this was like yeah like open open territory and most people i approached were quite surprised to even hear from someone they were almost like oh what that stuff you know it was almost like it'd be like kind of brushed under the rug you know and then um and rather than talking about the music to people with musicians i talked about their clothes and the look of it all right and i found that's a good way of communicating with people and a good way of getting into them in a way because if you talk about their music it's almost like you're it's almost like back to the old music press days like dissecting their work or something and that's a bit more more sensitive you know whereas if you go to somebody and say hey i really like your haircut you know nothing (laughs) yeah it's quite surface and it's a bit more innocent you know so i was sort of going in like from that angle and that really worked actually because then people are like oh yeah i used to go and like buy my clothes from like you know jumble sales and charity shops and, and it was like kind of start building together a picture of the scene how it you know kind of evolved the look of it and the feel of it and that's what i wanted i wanted it to be more from the inside looking out as opposed to like you know some sort of journalist trying to right figure it out you know what i mean i wanted to feel genuine and, yeah um, yeah it's completely it's, it's i mean it's the same thing with like this podcast that i'm doing you know it's like i because i i doubted at first w- the reason my reasons for doing it. I was like, what, what am I doing this for? But then I realized like, well, it's part of it is that I have a unique perspective because I know so many people that I can like yeah. talk to them as friends yeah, yeah. and not as an outsider trying to get this history, but like a person who lived it trying to make sense of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's, it's, all, it's all valid, isn't it? I think like, yeah, know, I mean, I think I'm just sort of compelled to do these sort of things really. I can't really, I can't stop myself. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I would too if I could. I'm like, I'm like, I'm driven somehow by something else, you know. Yeah. And then, and then with the scene in between, it was sort of yeah, just it just snowballed really. The yeah, the research, you know, and no one, no one was really hesitant. You know, there was a couple of people a little bit cagey about letting their photos go. Sure. And they, were, they were a bit precious about it. They're like, well, you know. I might, what people always say is I'm going to do my own book. That's what right. I'm going to do. <laughs> Saving yeah, this for my book. Yeah. <laughs> and I know one ever has yet, you know, but it's, I mean, maybe they will. Um, but I found with actually with this, with this revised edition, some of the people that were a little bit, um, yeah, a bit more, a bit reserved about it first time around and now a bit more, like, oh, okay. You know, it's a real thing. Yeah. The real thing Whereas initially it was a bit like, who is this guy writing to me? You can understand why they were a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people talk a big game about doing these kinds of projects, but you've executed a very, very good project. Yeah, I was lucky in the respect that like, Ziggy, the publisher, sort of stuck her neck out, really, because um, she didn't have any knowledge of that whole scene at all. And she'd grown up mainly in the States, and um, she's like 10, 15 years younger. Mm. Just, just didn't really know what it was, you know. So for her it's all a bit of a mystery but she obviously trusted in me that it was a real thing right and it proved to be a good idea you know so yeah so i mean i think it's a very brilliant idea to go to approach people with that fashion angle considering that uh and style be considering that you know it's a book of photos it's not a compilation album you're you're talking about the looks in these photos and uh i was wondering if anyone from the world of fashion has uh mentioned or contacted you at all to comment about the book because it seems like people who are you know s- scholars of style and sartorial yeah. choices would be interested in it. Oh yeah, it's definitely it's definitely been referenced a few times, and I think people use it as you know as inspiration. Yeah, you know, 
you know it has been you know i know it's been noted by down by various designers you know and um you know, like levi's do that heritage range you know the lbc mm. that reissue range and they've said before they've been inspired by some of the photos and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of thing and other other designers too um what's his name the guy that used to work for dior like heidi heidi Samain, like he's actually noted the book once or twice you know because he's he's quite into that whole like gc mary chain kind of look you know mm, so yeah he's used it as, as a bit of a reference you know um but yeah it has it's definitely crossed over which, is what, which I, want, I wanted it to at the time I, I wanted it to be almost a bit of a textbook in a way yeah you know, and a, bit, a, a real reference for people of that era without compromise you know right yeah i think you've achieved that in spades um is it big in japan i feel like that that these kind um, of micro niche things are so popular yeah but- yeah i think i think i think it's popular there i'd say where it's most popular is in the states actually mm. now i don't think it was first time round, but it's grown with the instagram it's become like i've been selling books of my instagram the last week or so and I'd say about 90% of them are going to the States. Which is oh, crazy. wow. Yeah. Quite a lot going to Portland, actually. Bizarre. I'm not probably, surprised. Yeah, you probably, you probably know most of the people there. <laughs> I probably do. Yeah. There's a lot going to, like, the Bay Area. It, it seems like yeah, more West West Coast as well, actually. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people in the UK. But, yeah, not so much. Yeah, a few in Japan. Um, yeah, it's interesting how it sort of develops. I mean, I think... Uh, I didn't. I didn't expect seeing in between to really, not that it's sold like millions or anything, but it's just. Um, it's definitely been for for a book that's quite marginal and, you know, didn't really get really any press or anything. Just kind of rolled along on its own, sort of undercurrent sort of thing. You know, sort of. Uh, I was quite surprised how well received it was, really. You know, but I think maybe people were waiting for something else that wasn't about, you know, punk and baggy and all the rest of it. Right. You know what I mean? It was just, it's sort of like, it's found its own corner, you know, and with the revised edition, because it, it was about to fall out of print. And she says, well, we should really keep it going, keep it alive, you know. Right. But why not, you know, why not change it a bit? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I thought, well, definitely change the cover, first of all, because the original cover is like blown up on the one guy with the bowl cut, you know. Right. And this time it's using the whole photo. So you kind of, you know, I sort of like zoom back out again. Right. Um, yeah, that's a band loop. Remember loop? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then I changed about 80% of the photos inside, but I kept the flow going. Yeah. So it's got, it's got the sort of skeletal feel of the original book, but it's just different interviews and some different bands slotted in and just sort of, but it's still got the same, um, you know, the same flow and it still like runs in the same timeline and everything, you know, so it's the same, but different kind of thing. So it's quite a like beautiful, it. beautifully made book for anybody who's ordering one. You're going to get a beautiful book oh, in the mail. You, yeah. it's, it's a lovely thing. And the photos yeah. are just awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thrilled with it. You know, I'm thrilled. That it's got like another lease of life and now mm-hmm. it can yeah, keep As on going. Yeah. Have you thought about future projects? I mean, I, I, I often think when I see your, garage rock obscuro photos of american you know i think sometimes these need to be a book i mean yeah i'd love to do that that's probably my main one i'd like to do would be a mid-60s american suburban like uh just garage band book like like style bible the sort of uh suburban garage bands like 65 to 67 like the real 
peak years. Yeah. Break, break it down to two years. Um, so I wouldn't have any real acid rock looking people, like no, no caftans or anything. Yeah. Well, it sticks and to it, the scene in between ethos. You yeah. know, you don't want to hit the, you don't want to hit the summer of love on hate street. No, you know, it's like, no. Again, done to death, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. We'll miss that, and then we'll miss that, miss the earlier stuff. So it won't be, won't be like surf music or anything. It'll be yeah. li- literally bands that are just inspired by the Rolling Stones, and right? Like yeah. the Yardbirds, and, and not even inspired by the Beatles. Be none, none of that matching suit stuff. It'll be like more casual looking. Yeah, you know, like bands and just like, you know, like a white t-shirt under like a paisley shirt and a pair of white stay press and penny loafers kind of thing like a bit preppy yeah know? but it's pretty cool when you get all those things together you start looking at it and it's just i think for people that even are interested in that kind of music it's just pure americana you know for right. me it's just like really really romantic you know yeah i mean above anything else you know yeah. or I'd, li- I'd like to see that as a book and the other book i'd like to do would be basically a scene in between but a, a companion american volume which would be quite a quite an undertaking i think the more i look at it because it's so city-based in the states i think you know and it's so sprawling i don't know how i'd really kind of tie it all together but i'd have you know you'd have obviously have like dc and olympia and all these kind of places but sort of unifying it i don't know if it would really work but i'd like to try that but it could be. Now, are you talking that same era, eighty yeah. to eighty-eight? But but of like punk music and things, American style. Yeah, I think I think I'd probably start it. I'd probably start it a little bit later, and I'd probably start it maybe in about eighty-four. It'd almost be like Rites of Spring, post-hardcore, yeah, American, yeah, and the college kind of college rock kind of things, you know, right? Like bands that are on like Homestead and. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, more like those bands that aren't hardcore, but yeah, definitely, definitely post hardcore. Squirrel bait, yeah, all that kind of thing. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like there's that, and that's that same era. That's that real kind of in between era. So I'd probably do it 100%. like I'd probably do it like right to spring to like bleach or something. Yeah, Free. yeah, that would be good. Yeah, I think of those scenes like I was saying as a person who was so deep into music in that time. I still found those scenes kind of mysterious like what is this home or forced exposure fanzine like uh, you know, things that i just didn't as a kid yeah. i didn't really get what this was and like interesting yeah yeah they put out some good stuff didn't they forced exposure oh yeah yes it'll be that kind of stuff it'll be slightly less sort of um not as easy to categorize and pin down you know yeah so yeah it wouldn't be straight hardcore and i wouldn't go near any like later hardcore, like you know, I wouldn't go near like youth crew or anything. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might wedge them in and just ruin the whole book. You know, put, just put, a like, big, big youth war, crew. Yeah, big like Warzone poster at the end or something. <laughs> yeah, but, that's uh, that. The main problem with that project would just be yeah, setting the parameters for it. I guess you know. I think so. Yeah, and I think yeah. I'd like yeah, right to spring and even like dinosaur and then all those other bands sure. like that. You know, so it's like. Post definitely, I guess it's like post hardcore. I mean, I've always people have always said college rock over here, but they don't. I don't think people really know how to define that. Even it's quite a loose term. It's almost like American indie rock, I suppose. Sort of like, yeah, yeah, that was college rock. When I when I think of college rock, I mean REM is the band. Oh, yeah. that, you know, you think yeah. of as the the huge yeah. breakthrough group of that yeah, scene. Yeah. But in Athens, you know the Athens the, yeah. that world, yeah, for sure. But I'm the more I look at it, and I think like every city's got its own scene yeah 
it's a lot it's more of an undertaking in the UK really because the UK is so sort of distilled so much and there's a real tight look and a real camaraderie between the whole thing you know the whole network of fanzines and it's it's so small in comparison with the US it's like yeah you've got that kind of paisley underground and then you've got the whole a DC post hardcore and how can I kind of connect those two because they're not really they're not really affiliated are they but but it's the same era but it's sort of yeah I don't know I need to find like a common thread with certain cities I think because I'd like to include lots of those bands yeah yeah, I, I mean, there's to... certain obvious connections like Olympia and DC, you know, had such, yeah. a, such a connection That's hand in back hand, and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess there's like, yeah, the sort of Boston groups, you know, even like um, early Lemonheads sort of fall into that to a degree, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, definitely. The, um, I think there's, like, there's lots of groups. There's like a little band up like the, like the Watch Children like, from New Jersey and. There's that bus stop label. Do you remember that from that? That was like based no. in like Iowa or something. Bus stop. They put out that band, um, Springfield, with like Rick, Rick Menk. How do you say his name? Rick, Rick, you know, he was in um, yeah, Springfields, and then he was in um, Velvet Crush a few years later. And, hmm. You know him? No. But, uh, they were, yeah, bus stop. They put out a few like mid '80s like American indie records. And one of them, like the, the Springfields, ended up on a British label. Like it ended up on Sarah Records, you know, that kind of cult Bristol label. There's, there are always like weird little strands that tie together here and there, you know. Yeah. So it's just piecing it together, making it like a tangible thing without it being like a, just a big mess, you know. Yeah, that's the historian's job. I'd like need like a map. At the beginning of the book, I need a map or something like people to actually get an idea the timeline and when the cities had their most crucial periods in that, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. You definitely years on it. You know, that might, that might be a self publication. I don't think anyone will go near that. That might be a (laughs) private pressing. You You never know. You never know. Yeah. If you got the photos, people will come. I think so. In a way I'd quite like to self publish as well. In a way I'd quite like to do that and like not really have it available like on Amazon and stuff. I hate that, you know, yeah. being on it just makes me feel sick. You know, you put, you put all your time and effort into this thing, you know, and then it ends up on Amazon, like before it's even out properly. And it's already like a sort of discount price. And it's like, it's just like such a bummer. You know, yeah. It's like born dead, you know, it's like, what's yeah. going on? Like, I have that same thing with just using Instagram where I'm like, I hate Facebook. And yet here I am, like all my archive project is all a hundred percent. That's the vehicle, you know, where, yeah, where, yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah, and they're brilliant tools, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I mean, like the, the last few years, the whole world has opened up so much. It's like, you know, and now, like, I mean, I was living in London till last year. I lived in London for about, you know, over 30 years, you know, and it's like, just don't feel the need to be there anymore now, you know, and it's like, yeah. I think if the technology wasn't there, I'd still be a bit like just drawn back all the time. But as it stands now, it's like you can almost live anywhere and have this sort of, connection you know what's yeah what's going on with network you know it's, it's cool you know. yeah it's the bright side of the internet era we live yeah. in yeah i'm glad i'm glad it wasn't there when i was a kid i think that would have probably would have killed my killed yeah. me in a way i, mean, I probably would have been, I would have become like a, a reclusive teenager like just you know just stuck in my screen like in, in a room oh, yeah it would have been awful really so i'm glad that i had that whole time of my life where 
I was just living in the 20th century, slow motion life, like everyone else, you know. Yeah, I, I look back at that time too, and I think the same thing. How like it, it forced you to get out and see the world yeah. because you had to get totally. out of your house to meet anybody. I yeah, I had yeah all the time, and yeah, I'd go from that, our little like, Leon C and get on the train from Leon C up to London and across right up to West London, and then like East London then wasn't happening at all. It was just a place you went through. Really, there was nothing going on there. I mean, pretty much nothing anyway. All all the action was over in West London. Like, you go to gigs at the Clarendon over in, like, Hammersmith and Bay 63, which is the Labrick Grove by Portobello Road. You go right across the other side from, like, deepest, like, East England over to, like, the other side of London just to go and see a couple of groups. But otherwise, what else are you going to do? You're going to stay at home and, like, just, like, rock at home, you know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. And it'd be, it'd be incredible, you know, you all of a sudden you walk into a room and there'd be people there from all over the, and a lot of other provincial people they would be coming from the other side, like coming from Oxford or wherever. And, you know, this be really interesting, you know, it'd be a table of like fanzines and, you know, all this kind of that whole connection of world would open up, you know, but you, but you had to actually physically yeah, move yourself somewhere to, you know, get on the train and do the whole schlepping across London to, to witness anything. Otherwise, it wouldn't come to you, would it? It'd be like, you know. No, you had to be a detective. Yeah, you had to be, yeah. And it was just really exciting. And I used to go to gigs my own sometimes. If I couldn't find anyone to come with me, I'd travel up and get lost and wander around. And, you know, it was all part of the adventure, you know what I mean? And just oh, absolutely. Get yourself, in all, get yourself in all kinds of situations. It's just like, at the time, it was all just, just made complete sense. I was just so like, I, didn't, I wasn't really interested in anything else, you know what I mean? So I was like only interested in, in records and music and old clothes really that was kind of my thing I, I had no other interest at all so it was like you know I was just yeah from an early age I just had that kind of it just I was almost driven to do this kind of stuff you know yeah I was never, interested, never interested in like sport or anything I never had any other interest you know I was like really quite one-dimensional I think I still am now you know it's a good dim- it's a good one dimension to pick yeah, I think so. It could be a lot worse, couldn't it? So, yeah. Find some purpose, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, tonight. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah That's a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me on. You know. Yeah, I admire your work so much, and I think what you're yeah. doing is very valuable service. I look forward to your future books. Yeah, yeah. Well, and keep sending me photos. You find any more, like you know, Pacific Northwest pics, and I will. I will I will do that for sure. Is there, yeah. I mean, obviously I'll send people towards your Instagram. Is yeah, there anything else do. you want people to be turned on to? Um, no, just keep, keep, keep the lookout of what I'm doing really. It's, that's it's, the it's, portal. Yeah, that's the portal. Yeah. There isn't really anything else right now. It'll just be yeah, future publications and awesome. maybe, maybe, maybe collaborations here and there, you know? Wonderful. That's yeah. That's, that's the size of it really. You know. Okay, yeah. great. Well, thank yeah. you so much again, Sam. I really appreciate it. Yeah, nice one. All right, speak to you soon. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye. Bye.